Get ready to rumble. Shilling Show Unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Kimberly Ells, a family policy researcher, a mother of five, and author of the new book, The Invincible Family, Why the Global Campaign to Crush Motherhood and Fatherhood Can't Win. And Kimberly Ells, thank you for joining us today on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I want to get to this because this is where it all starts, and it's really the essence of motherhood. I think in some ways the term has been uh, either misused or ill-defined recently. So what is the essence of motherhood? So that's actually a question that brought me um, to the table and brought me to writing the book. I was pondering one day on just motherhood and the the structure of the world and how these, how God has set up, you know, what he's done here with families. And um, the thought came to me that babies belong to their mothers. That might seem obvious, but it hit me kind of like a ton of bricks. And I think there'd be few people who would argue that a newborn baby does not belong (laughs) to its mother. That's something that has been honored in almost every culture at almost every time, because it's inherently true, of course, in cooperation with um, the father. But the mother has a unique position because the baby comes directly out of her body. It's almost indisputable that the baby belongs to her. And that belonging, it doesn't mean ownership. It means belonging. It means responsibility. It, It means the the duty and the opportunity to teach that child his very first life lessons and to, you know, just keep the child alive and, and nurture and love that child. And that, that unique position has been given directly to women, of course, in cooperation with men. And my position is that God did that on purpose, you know, that there's men and there's women, they cooperate together to create new life. They work together to raise um, humanity, um, and the women's position is unique, and it's uniquely powerful. There's no one that has stronger claim on a child than the child's mother, which puts her in a position of extreme power. And, you know, the remarkable thing is that most women put in that position with that great power of their newborn babies do it well. Of course, there's sad exceptions, but most mothers love their babies best and want the best for their babies and and are the best at, you know, shepherding them from the time they're little uh, on throughout their lives. You know, it's interesting that in, in conjunction with this confusion on the definition of motherhood and what it means, we've got this similar thing going on with the family. And so we have the redefinition of family exclusionary of the nuclear family. So why is the nuclear family important and how do we actually define a family? Simple definition of family is a group of people to whom you're related by either blood or marriage. Marriage is kind of the bridge that makes people who are not related to yeah. part of our, our family. So that's a simple definition. Of course, 
defining the family has become very controversial, but in essence, that's what it is. And the reason that it's important is because it undergirds all the other structures and even political structures in the world. And what I mean by that is this family existed before the state existed, right? The family predates the state. The family is the original form of government. A family can exist without any laws governing, without anyone telling them that it can exist. Um, a, a state exists because we as individuals and as families create it. And so the family is, is primary. It underlies all other structures in the world. And as I've said, the family is a private institution, which means that, you know, for how there's so many forces today in the world kind of fighting for a collectivist way of living, collectivism in whatever form, but the family stands in direct opposition to that because it's inherently private, because parents inherently, you know, have stewardship over their children first, before the state, before anyone else. And it's been said that between the totalitarian state and the individual is the family. That is an extremely powerful and strong position, and it's almost impossible to break it down completely. That's why the name of my book is The Invincible Family, because families spring from the anatomy of people created by God. And you can't, you can't stop that. You can name it, you can, you can deplatform the family, you can do a lot of things, but you really can't ultimately destroy the family because it's inherent in our anatomy. You know, Kimberly, when I'm listening to you talk about this, and it makes so much sense, and we know that this is God's design, I'm thinking about the comment by Hillary Clinton uh, some decades ago that it takes a village to raise a child. And of course, that was kind of the socialist collectivist view of parenting. I mean, I, I do understand that other people can be involved and help to shape your child, but it doesn't take a village to raise a child. And I think a lot of people believe that. I believe the opposite. It takes a family to raise a child. And, and the community, yes, is important. I, my thought is it takes a community to support a mother. A lot of times families, we all need outside support. I don't think anyone would claim that we, we, we don't need each other to some degree, but a child needs his or her parents, first and foremost, from the beginning. First of all, they need their mother to, to birth them and then feed them and, you know, from her very body and the family is set up in such a way that it provides diversity for the child because there's male and female, which are in some senses opposites, but they're both represented in the family. And so that gives the child a, a different view on the world right from their own parents, the people that created them. The village is extra. Uh, you know, it's more like frosting, but the, the family is the thing that the child needs most, especially uh, when they're little and ongoing throughout life. There's just nothing, there's nothing that competes with the family. And when the family breaks, it's always problematic for, for a child. It's not that people can't get, get through that, but, but it's always problematic for a child because their, their little universe is kind of, kind of broken up. Again, a lot of people find themselves in difficult situations and they're not irredeemable, but the fact is that the family was meant to stay intact and the people who created the child are meant to be with that child, you know, forever. And so, the idea that the village is raising the child, it's, I think that works to undo parental rights and to let the state and other entities kind of get their hooks into the children, and, which is, is just almost never helpful. 
I don't want to leave fathers out, and you have a chapter in the book that deals very specifically with fathers. We have a cultural attack on fathers and fatherhood. I'm wondering if you've looked at this, when it actually began, or when you could discern it beginning, and how it's morphed over the years, because it's become extreme. The bulk of my work is focused on mothers and the power of motherhood, and I'll explain why I do that, and then I'll get to your question about fathers. I, I talk about the power of mothers so clearly and often because Mothers are so often told that they don't have any power, mm. that being a mom, uh, quote, stay-at-home mom is a powerless position, a position of being a doormat, of, a, you know, serving and not being paid for what you're doing, and that it's, in some sense, some sort of insult to humanity, that, that being a mother. And so I think women need to understand and be told that their power is profound <laughs> as a mom. On the other hand, the power of men is also profound, and those two powers are complementary. And they're meant to be. And so they're slightly different, but both both powerful. And te- if you tell the woman, oh, you've got, it, motherhood isn't powerful. You've got to do something else, you know, out in the world to, to prove your power, to have any power, even in society. Then she begins to kind of think uh, differently about things. And then men become, begin to be displaced somewhat because their role as providers and protectors is somewhat uh, put into question. And men are really essential in their role as providers and, and protectors. And they often excel at, at doing that. And again, not that there's not any overlap. Obviously, women can excel at you know a great many things, and, and men are good nurturers as well. But there's certain gifts that men and women bring to the table. And as you said, there seems to be a tendency to belittle almost, I would say, the role of fatherhood. You know, so often in the media, we see mm-hmm. fathers represented as either men are presented as sex crazed buffoons or you know just idiots even if there's a family on tv often the the father is portrayed in some sort of ridiculous caricature way rather than as a needed and powerful and necessary element of the family and so i think we've seen this kind of war on both mothers and fathers marching forward for quite a long time i think it kind of took off i guess you could say maybe in the 60s but you know, we've all been watching this kind of happen. And, but the thing is that we can, we can fight back against that. And it starts with our, in our families, our families are kind of the answer to this, this uh, whole cultural movement against the family. To put a little exclamation point on the, on the value of fathers that you discuss in the invincible family. um, It was just incredible to me, this long list of, of kind of checkpoints if there's no father in the home that kids are much more likely to be involved in uh, perhaps premarital sex to be involved in the legal system the list goes on and on and on and it's a pretty simple thing if we would just embrace that as a society to correct a lot of our ills absolutely there's a protective factor that's almost it's difficult to describe why it is but there's a protective factor to children where when there's a father in the home i mean it's as simple as Studies and research shows that even if there's a father present in the home, a baby is more likely to simply survive its first month of life. Mm. And then, and as you said, going on, you know, the social factors and things that are affected by having a father present in the home are, are just uh, really profound. Opinion that's so often presented to young women these days is you don't need a man. You can do it all. Well, you, a mother may be very capable of, of doing a great many things, even in the business world or whatever, but the fact is you need a man. You need a man in a lot of ways, and, and a man needs a woman 
And to say that is, is not undercutting either one of them. It's a beautiful and complimentary partnership. It's meant to be cooperative, not competitive. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast with Kimberly Ells continues in just a moment. Support this podcast online at shillingshow.com. Borderhawk.news is a one-stop shop with the latest news about immigration, nationalism, and globalism. The Borderhawk staff daily curates immigration news stories and, in the fashion of the Drudge Report, updates the site with cutting-edge content and original first-class commentary. Borderhawk.news highlights national and international media reports, tweets, and nuggets buried in local news blurbs, polls, video clips, and policy research. Borderhawk is pro-legal immigration, pro-rule of law, but against an unsecure border as countless Americans have suffered violence at the hands of criminal illegal aliens. And an increasing number of Americans are concerned about how mass migration affects their daily life. Borderhawk.news will remain on the forefront of the immigration issue with a buffet of info to read, evaluate, and share. Bookmark Borderhawk.news. Add them on social media at News on Twitter. Chilling Show Unleashed. Kimberly Ells is our guest on the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. We're discussing her new book, The Invincible Family. I want to go to something that's really, really troubling, and we see it happening all around us, which is the breaking of the bond between women and their children. And you discuss this in the book, but what I see is, is women parading in the streets for the right to kill their own children then saying, well, I have kids, but they were my choice and I still stand for the right to kill my own children. If this bond is broken, then then all of God's design is under threat. Right. The issue of abortion, you know, and it took me actually some years to, to see this as, I mean, I've always been pro-life and anti-abortion, but it took me a while to come to see this as the core issue. Because if life itself is stopped from happening, nothing else matters. And and on a very deep level, like you have explained, if a mother can be convinced that it is somehow her noble right to eliminate her own children, I feel like our society is in grave peril because the love of mothers is is basically the gold standard of love. A mother's love is kind of the universal standard of, of the height, the zenith of what love is. The fact that women have somehow been convinced, first of all, having sex with random men who are not committed to them, heart full, is somehow empowering. That's just an incredible thing that has happened in the minds of women. And then to say that not only that, but then if a child is produced, that we then have the right to kill it. We've made women takers of life instead of makers of it, as they're uniquely positioned to do. And you know, so many women, not all women, but many women after having an abortion, uh, even years later, come to understand the depth of, and the gravity of, of, of what they have done. And to find yourself in the position of where you have taken a life instead of making it is it, it, just absolutely tragic. It's sold in such a appealing way, appealing to the rights of women. Somehow, the, you know, the abortion movement has stolen the, the language of women's rights, which is actually a very valid movement, or at least it was at one point, but it, it's been 
almost totally co-opted to where women feel like if they are pro-woman, they have to be pro-abortion. It's just, just simply not the case and also very, very sad. You have a section in the book about freeing women and socialism and something that you just mentioned, which is in essence unconstrained intercourse was being promoted by Ingalls. I want to go to why that is being promoted by socialists, because there's something underlying this. It's not just, hey, let's have a good time, but something further there. Right. So when you look back to the the founders of modern socialism, as you mentioned, of course, there's Karl Marx and then there's Frederick Engels, and he's the one that I focus on in the book. And many of his early writings, he was just absolutely insistent that the ideal way for sexuality to happen is random. That he, And he tries to make the case that in, in times past, there was no such thing as monogamous marriage. That's an invention of, of evil men, but I won't go into all the arguments for that, but but he's basically saying that that the ideal we need to return to is just free sex. And he talks about that as being freeing when, in fact, it's just the opposite. When you engage in sexual intercourse outside the bonds of a committed marriage, you put especially the woman in a very difficult position and, and any children, of course, that might be born from that because they're not born into a solid, committed lifelong relationship that is meant to last and to be their support throughout their life. So you ask, why is this happening? It could be that angles just want to have, you know, wild sex, but at the deeper level, it undermines the family at its very core at the, at the, what should be the beginning of the family, which is when sex takes place. It throws that all off balance. And if there isn't a committed marriage in place first, and then there's a pregnancy, then that, that child is from the very beginning, put in a compromised position. Again, not that that those things can't be overcome by the grace of God, but it starts things off on a a bad foot, and it it works to undermine the family, which, as we've talked about, is the core of civilization. There is no civilization. There is no government without families building it. If someone wants to institute a collectivist system in life of, of any sort, they have to undermine the power of the family. They have to undermine the structure of the family because that is original government. It's sort of ironic, but when you look closely, it's obvious that the movement to encourage people to just have free and committed sex is is a direct attack on the family and on the stability of children, which is the rising generation. And so if you accomplish that, if you kind of work to get the family out of the way as much as you can and to have, have children be born into unstable situations wherein it might seem that they need more government intervention and help, then you're handing the power of the family bit by bit over to the state. And we see this happening with the abolition of parental rights across the country, particularly when it regards government schools, the sorts of things that are being taught in the government schools. Uh, We had a lesson in this in a political lesson here in Virginia, where the uh, Democrat running for governor, Terry McAuliffe, made a statement that really deprecated parental rights. And I think he lost the election because of it. But this is a broad attack, is it not? Yes. I mean, that was kind of a, <laughs> a moment where the, it was the spear point, right? Where, yes. where he was just coming out and saying, you know, that the state has more <laughs> stewardship over your child, basically, than the parent does. And parents are not okay with that. Parents are not okay with that. We are seeing it not only in your state, but in so many states, this encroachment of government and government schools onto territory that should be firmly the parents. Um, as an example, one movement that I've been studying somewhat is the whole child 
whole community, whole school movement. It's called the whole schools movement. Basically what it is is to make schools the hub of family life to provide everything a child might need basically for the first two decades of their life in a school setting, including healthcare centers, counseling, anything that a child might possibly need. It, there's a actually very well-organized and well-funded movement, even supported by the CDC for the, the whole school's movement. And it's very collectivist in nature, very anti-parent and anti-family in nature, even though they give some lip service to the parents. And so that's something that we need to, anytime we see whole school, whole child, and they make it sound so lovely, but, but what it is, is it's getting the state's ideology to the child rather than the parent's beliefs and ideology uh, to the next generation. And to just put an exclamation point on that, we have here uh, locally, uh, they have a closet at at the local government schools now where you can get your basic supplies, whatever you need for day-to-day life, deodorant, toothpaste, and all of that. And they're also providing two meals a day. And I'm thinking at some point they're going to be providing all three meals a day as the state essentially moves in to become the parent and then relieves the parents of, of their duties. And I think some of them are embracing that. Yes, absolutely. Like even in my school district during COVID, suddenly, magically, there was free lunch for everyone. Where is that money coming from? Why were they doing that? It lends itself to getting parents to rely more and more on the support of the school and the state rather than their own devices. And and sure, that sounds appealing in some ways, but it breaks down what ought to be the strongest unit in society, which is the individual family. Yes, we're seeing it on a, on a huge scale. And and I think we're about to see it in even a more massive way from the, the research that I've done is the encroachment of, onto parental rights through the schools. There's um, a quote that I found by Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but the old, you know, yes. the priest in the early days, Martin Luther. And he said about the schools, he said, I'm very much afraid that schools will prove to be the great gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the Holy Scriptures, engraving them in the hearts of youth. I advise no one to place his child where the scriptures do not reign paramount. Are our schools today engraving the Holy Scriptures on the hearts of our youth? <laughs> the scriptural teachings are not even present. And, and in some cases, there are obviously still some good schools and, and certainly good teachers out there. But from what I'm seeing and from a lot of what I explained in the book, the schools are indeed becoming, you could say, the great gates of hell from the things that are being presented to even our little children. And so we have to respond to that. You spend a lot of time in the book talking about this movement of children's sexual rights. I haven't heard the term before, but I certainly am aware of the concept. So how did you first become aware of this and what's behind the push? It was about 10 years ago and I found and I had just happened to find an article online and it was, as I discovered, published by International Planned Parenthood Federation. Mm-hmm. And it was called the Exclaim Document and it was outlining these 10 principles of sexual rights for youth, for children. And I found that really alarming because I didn't know that there was such a movement as I got, that's what kind of got me into this whole arena. And I started to study that and I decided, okay, this is something that deserves to be fought and I will fight it with everything I have. And then I since quickly discovered that this sexual rights movement for children had been occurring on a global level, particularly at the United Nations, for decades. And it's slowly been implemented. So International Planned Parenthood Federation partners directly with United Nations agencies 
Planned Parenthood has a huge seat at the world table. And so, again, they're pushing sex in the form of a right on our children to present to our children. Not, not only is sex just a fun activity you should do just because, but it's, in fact, one of your noble human rights to engage in sexual activity and to seek sexual pleasure and sexual information and services apart from your parents, apart from any desire you have to have children or, or anything else, that it's just simply right. And is it? They've just declared that it is. They've just decided that they're going to present sex as a right to children, and it isn't. But there's actually a huge movement. One of the major ways that this is brought into the schools, of course, is through comprehensive sexuality education, which I spend a whole chapter on in the book. And that's one way that parents can specifically fight back is, is by keeping comprehensive sexuality education programs out of their schools, or at the very least, opting their children out. To find ways to push back, to fight back, Kimberly Ells. And so there's two components of this. One would be parents individually, and the others would be policymakers. What's the road back? Mm -hmm. The first and brightest road back is teaching in our own families. Teaching to our children consistently, regularly, and with love and clarity what we believe about sex, gender, marriage, and the family. And why we believe those things. And there are opportunities everywhere that present opportunities for us to discuss these things, and we need to take them. We need to make sure our children are hearing from us what we believe to be the truth. Then, of course, modeling it in our lives, but consistently having conversations. It can't just be a one-time chat about sex or whatever. We need to approach these topics in a holistic way. And teach our children not only about sex at the appropriate ages and when they're ready, but that therein lies the power to create human life and to create awe and inspire reverence for the creation of life itself, which is what is supposed to happen in families through sex in a marriage situation. And we need to be clear about that because our our children are are not going to get that message from almost anywhere else. And we all know this. It's, it's very clear. So we, in our families, must, we must be clear. We've got to read, read books with our families that model the kind of living that we want. We need to avoid the things that teach the wrong things. And when they come up, we need to talk about them, those types of things. One of the first and most obvious things is we need to get children's sexual rights advocates out of our schools. It's just totally inappropriate and unacceptable that Planned Parenthood or other entities that teach children that sex is a right for them, teach them how to pursue it and teach them how to obtain sexual services without the knowledge of their parents. These things are unacceptable. And as parents, we we have to fight those things legislatively and at the district and local level. And we can. The thing is, we've seen this rippling across the nation and, and in Virginia, where you are, parents are stepping up and the power is ours. It's, it doesn't lie anywhere else. The power is within us. We just need to, to step up to the plate and, and to face this head on. And in policy, we need to enact things that protect our children, that protect their innocence, not that trot out all the worst things in life in, under the guise of some sort of education that it's going to be good for them. Even in my state, I'm seeing now this, which is a very conservative state, there's a, there's a large contingency of, of people who are advocating for pornographic and very offensive and base materials in schools under the guise of education. And that's, 
we can't go that direction. We can't have that. And so we as parents can, of course, direct our children's education whichever way we choose. But it's also advantageous for us to affect policy largely because, you know, that affects the culture at large, which our children are kind of doing in. So both both at home and in policy is paramount. Kimberly Ells, if people want to get a copy of The Invincible Family or if they want to follow the work that you do online, how can they do that? Sure. My website is invinciblefamily.com and there's information on how to find the book. The easiest place to find the book is on Amazon. The paperback edition is coming out in just a few days. You can sign up for my newsletter at invinciblefamily.com and I'd love it if people would follow me on Twitter. It's just my name, Kimberly Ells. These are words of wisdom. Kimberly Ells, thank you for joining us today on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Thank you so much. That concludes another edition of the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time.